Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time together, thankful for an opportunity to gather to worship, uh, to express our thanks and our praise and our love for you. Uh, But God, we recognize that that's not the only reason we come here. Uh, We come here uh, to hear a word from you, to open our hearts and our lives to the work and the movement of your spirit, that you might lift us up and encourage us, but God, also that you might teach us, provide us wisdom, challenge us, and move us more and more into your likeness. Uh, So we just pray, God, that in these moments together, that you would form us and shape us, um, that your Holy Spirit would be uh, active in this place as we open up your word together. So God, thank you for this time. Uh, May your work be done, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, today I want to do something, uh, I want to take a teaching approach uh, to the message. Uh, We have been in a a series through the Gospel of John for a big part of the year, uh, taking breaks here and there for different series, but as a staple, just walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, It's been a lot of fun for me to preach through the Gospel of John. I hope that it's been a lot of fun for you to listen. Uh, But now we've come to the cross, um, and this is a pivotal thing. Uh, And so last week, I, I preached on the cross. Uh, and I got excited. My, our audio and visual guys said, you, you got way too loud, and it was peaking, and the podcast quality is going to go down, and they gave me a big hard time. So, uh, so they promised to churn me down today. Um, but I'm going to take a little more of a teaching approach on the cross today, uh, because I want to help us come to a more robust understanding of the meaning of the cross. Uh, however, I, I want to tell you, before we do that, I want to tell you two things. Uh, number one is there are no steps for you to take as a result of this sermon. Uh, today, you, will, you may leave not knowing exactly how to uh, apply this to your life, uh, which is to say you may not identify this message as immediately practical. Uh, but I would say this, its practicality will come from having a better understanding of the faith we profess as Christians and see more clearly the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the practicality is in seeing the beauty of what God has done on the cross. Uh, the second thing is some, some of the ideas I, I will share this morning may at first be uncomfortable or unfamiliar to you, uh, but I invite you to consider this message uh, with an open heart. So that being said, let's, we're in John chapter 19. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, I will read verses uh, 25 through 30 in John chapter 19. Uh, After I'm done reading, I will say this is the word of God for the people of God, to which uh, I would invite your response, thanks be to God. Uh, So it says this, John chapter 19, beginning with verse 25, reading through verse 30. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman... Here is your son, and then to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Verse 28. Now later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And after, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Last week when I was preaching on the cross rather than teaching, uh, I mentioned that the cross is uh, central to the Christian faith. Uh, specifically, I mentioned that everything preceding the cross in the, in the biblical story is leading us up to uh, the cross, and then everything that follows uh, is commentary seeking to understand the significance of the cross. And, and so while, uh, as you look at the story in your Bible, the, cross does, the story of the cross does not lie central in the pages, it is in fact central to the story. Everything preceding it is leading it up to the cross, preparing us to understand the cross, and then everything afterward is commentary on the significance of the cross and how we understand it. And the centerpiece of all the commentaries that have taken place over the, the couple thousands of years that since Jesus died on the cross, uh, the centerpiece of all that commentary has been what is called atonement theories. Atonement theories essentially are uh, ways of understanding uh, what took place on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, every form and expression of Christian faith agrees that humanity, through the death of Christ on the cross, is made at one with God. Uh, And so when we come up with this big theological word, atonement, I want you to think of it as at-one-ment. Uh, that's where we come up with it. Atonement means at one meant, being made at one with God. And all, all throughout Christian history, every form and expression of Christian faith has agreed on one thing, that somehow, mysteriously, through the death of this Jewish carpenter on the cross, we are made at one with God. That is the central claim of, of Christianity. Uh, Atonement theories, then, are seeking to understand how or why Christ's death functions in such a way that we are made one with God. It's a a way of trying to ask, how in the world does this work? Someone said to me this week, I don't care how the pie was made as long as it tastes good. (laughs) Uh, Well, atonement theories are trying to understand how the pie was made (laughs) so that we know why it tastes good. Uh, And and so that's uh, hopefully a way of understanding the the role of atonement theories. Now, the most popular way of understanding the death of Christ in the modern Western world uh, has been what is called uh, the penal substitutionary atonement view. Uh, I told you this would be teaching. Uh, Or you also can just call it the substitutionary view of the atonement. Now, this view says that God, uh, that man sinned against God, but since God is holy, he cannot look upon sin. Therefore, uh, He cannot look upon us or be in relationship with us because of our guilt. So our sin has broken relationship with God. Uh, However, God does still love us. And so out of love, he sends his son to bear the punishment of our sin. And so Jesus Christ received the punishment of the sin that we deserved. He was ruthlessly beaten and then killed in order to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so now having his wrath appeased, God is now free to forgive and to love humanity once again. Um, In this view, Jesus uh, protects humanity from God's wrath. Or you could say it this way, Jesus is the shield uh, by which we are protected from the angry wrath of God against our sin. Uh, This is likely uh, the only Uh, view of the atonement that you have ever heard. (laughs) If you grew up in the church in the West, this is probably how you have ever, the only way you've ever understood uh, this, the the, the cross and the meaning of the cross. 
I want to point out to you what I see as two primary problems with understanding the cross of Jesus Christ in this way. Uh, The first one is, uh, in this view, God the Father and God the Son are pitted against one another. Uh, they, they, rather than standing in Trinitarian unity, that is a way of saying rather than staying in unity as the Godhead who exists as three persons, uh, are rather pitted against one another. Um, they're at odds with one another in this view, one having to step in and save us from the other. Uh, the son, the, 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 the father burning down his wrath against humanity and sin. And the only way to have that anger appeased or his wrath uh, thwarted is in fact for Jesus to step in and shield us uh, and take all the angry punishment of sin uh, that we in fact uh, deserved. Uh, I think that anytime that we talk about theology, we can't, uh, we can't bring disunity to the Trinity. We can't pit one uh, person of the Trinity against than another, and this is precisely what this view does. Uh, the second one is the second problem is that it assumes the primary problem that the gospel is seeking to solve is individual guilt. Uh, it assumes that the primary problem that the gospel is seeking to solve is individual guilt. Now, you might say, why are we taking a whole Sunday morning for a theology lecture? I'm not interested in this. I could have been home watching football or sleeping in. Like, why in the world are we talking about this? Well, We're talking about this because I think it's really important to get our thinking about the cross right. Uh, If we say that the cross is central to our faith, the way in which we think about the cross, uh, we need to get that right. So, uh, so bear with me this morning and let's, uh, let's dive in. So I think there's two primary problems and I want to present an alternative way of understanding what is happening on the cross. Then God the Father was really mad and so God the Son had to step in and save us from God the Father. Otherwise he would just have destroyed us all. Uh, I, want to, I want to present another view that I think is more biblical. Uh, and I would also submit to you that it's also more historic. Uh, that is to say uh, that the church fa- many of the church fathers... Uh, the patristic fathers believed in this, this view of the cross. Uh, and I also think that John, the gospel writer, is pointing us in another direction. Uh, if we will pay very close attention to his narrative of the death of Christ. And so I want to I hone in and I want to focus in on a couple of things this morning. Because remember, as we've learned through the gospel of John, is all the details are important. Every detail matters in the gospel of John. And John wants to be sure and mention a couple of things that Jesus said from the cross. And that is, I am thirsty and it is finished. So let's explore those together this morning. The first one, John records that Jesus says from the cross, I am thirsty. Thirsty. Now, if you've been listening closely to the Gospel of John as he has been telling the story, uh, this should confuse you and maybe even deeply bother you. Uh, if you, by this, you should be deeply bothered by this statement, or at very least, you should at least be confused by Jesus saying, "I am thirsty." And here are, the, here are some of the reasons why. In chapter two, John tells a story uh, where we learn the first miracle that Jesus performed. It was at the wedding at Cana, where guests have run out, where the host had run run out of wine, the worst possible thing that you could happen as a host of a wedding uh, in this culture. He had run out of wine uh, and the guests are thirsty. 
And so Jesus churns the water that is available there and he turns it into not just any wine, but fine wine, the best wine. And so all the guests go from the outrage that the host ran out of wine to, oh, you have saved the best wine for last. And then every, everyone went home happy. Uh, and so we have this story of Jesus turning water into wine in order to quench the thirst of wedding guests uh, in chapter four, then, John tells the story of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, in which case and at which Jesus offers the woman living water. And of course, he isn't talking about the water from the well, but rather he's using this, this uh, tremendous teaching moment to point the Samaritan woman to himself, that he himself is the living water. In John chapter six, Jesus says that those who believe in him will never be hungry and never be thirsty. In John chapter seven, Jesus speaks again of living water. And the original language of living water is what we might call bubbling water, right? In this culture, uh, they couldn't go to their faucet and just turn it on and have water running out. Uh, And so uh, it was either stagnant water or living water or water that was moving in a river uh, or a waterfall, something like that. And so what Jesus says is, if you believe in me, you will have living water. It is a way of saying that there is life, there will be life bubbling out of you. How many of us think we need more Christians where the life is bubbling out of them, right? <laughs> we don't need grumpy Christians anymore. Uh, we, need, we need the living water kind of faith. And that's precisely what Jesus promises us. And so in John chapter two, water into wine. In John chapter four, the woman at the well, living water. In John chapter six, if you believe in me, you'll never be hungry or thirsty. In John chapter seven, Jesus nailing down again on this whole idea of living water boiling up out of us. And yet here is Jesus on the cross saying, I am thirsty. This ought to shock us or confuse us. How can the one who churns water into wine be thirsty? Has the living water failed? Has the eternal water run out? That's what we are meant to be asking when we hear this question. And the answer, of course, is that no, John is showing us something else that's very important to the gospel. And I want you to hear this. That in order to redeem humanity, Jesus had to experience the full weight of the human experience. Essential to the work of redemption was Jesus to come to a place of thirst, of shame, and even death in order to redeem us. So the gospel, I would submit to you, is not primarily trying to solve the problem of personal guilt, although it certainly does that. What the, the primary problem that the gospel is addressing is that because of our rebellion and disobedience against God, we have become subject to sin and death. Paul says it this way, for the wage or the cost of sin is death. And so due to our rebellion, it isn't trying to just make us appease our guilt to that, but rather it's trying to solve the death problem. Are you with me? In other words, if, if we narrow our view of salvation to the appeasement of personal guilt, we have a very small gospel. But if we understand that because of our rebellion against God, we have become subject then to sin and death, for the wage and cost of sin is death, then we have a picture of salvation that is dealing with the death problem and the sin problem. This is a much larger gospel. And so I would submit to us that we need to have a much bigger gospel than we typically have. Are you with me so far? 
That's a very whispery yes, but I'm going to take it as a loud yes and move on. (laughs) And so it isn't this. It isn't that God is disgusted by sin, churns away, and then kills his son uh, instead of us to appease his anger. That is not the gospel. But rather, it is this, that in order to address the problem of death, God in Christ must enter the human experience fully, even experiencing death at the hand of the evil empire. And I want to show you several examples of this, that, that the gospel does not hinge on the fact that God is so holy he cannot look upon our sin, and so he needs a shield in the way. This is not what we see in the ministry of Jesus. And so we need to come to terms with that Jesus is, that God is like Jesus. And so what we see in the ministry of Jesus reveals to us the Father. And what we see in Jesus Christ is that, isn't that he turns away from sin because of disgust, but rather he enters into sin in order to redeem it. He enters into our brokenness in order to rescue us out. And we, we, we gotta get that difference correct. And so there is a woman who's been looking for love in all of the wrong places. And she was singing the U2 song while she was doing it. She has been married five times. But Jesus does not turn away from her at the well. Jesus turns toward her, breaks all the social rules in order to engage with her, and he offers her living water. There is a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He is greedy. And he is a Jew working in collusion with the occupying Romans. As a result, he finds himself friendless with no table at which to eat with company. But Jesus comes to him, calls him out of the tree, and dines with him at his table. And says, today salvation has come to this house. There is a woman caught in adultery. And the crowd wants to carry out the letter of the law and stone her as the law permits. But Jesus steps in and he says, you who are without sin, be the first to throw a stone. And then when everyone refuses and walks away, he tells the woman, go and sin no more. There is a man possessed by a legion of evil. He has been cast out of the city He harms himself. He wears no clothes. He is truly a man gone mad. Jesus does not turn his face in disgust because of this man's possession or sin, but rather Jesus enters in, calls the legion out, and restores this man to health and community. You see, throughout the the Gospels, throughout the ministry of Jesus, what we see over and over again consistently and predictably is that Jesus does not avoid or turn away from sin, but rather Jesus enters in in order to redeem and to heal. And so he faithfully engages human sin, human brokenness, and human futility until finally he comes to the point where he joins us even in our death which is the result, of course, of all of this sin and brokenness. The, for for the, the, the death is the, is the cost of sin, as Paul tells us. And so Jesus finally, in his solidarity with humanity that began in the manger, right? The whole beauty of the, of the Christmas story, the whole beauty of Advent is that the, 
The creator God would come and be with us and enter into solidarity with us. And the final act of solidarity is that he enters in even unto death. The psalmist writes this of God. Even when I make my bed in Sheol, which is a Hebrew word for hell, even when I make my bed in hell, you are there. You see, the psalmist was even, even had an imagination and, and maybe was, was, was thinking of a time and knowing the character of God revealed through the Holy Spirit that, that now that God has entered even unto death, there is no place that is not filled with his presence. You see, part of the reason that we recite in the creed that he descended into the dead or descended into hell, the very reason that that's part of our creed is a way of saying there is no depth to which God will not go to find solidarity with us. There is no, there is no measure that he has not taken in order to love us. And this is God revealed in Christ on the cross. You see, the cross is not about the, the God the Father being angry and then God the Son stepping in. It's these two, all three members of the Trinity acting in accord with one another to enter in fully to the human experience in order to redeem us from our sin. That's a far more beautiful gospel, amen? Oh man, we, don't want, we need to let go of our ideas of a God who is in the sky and just angry with us but rather embrace what, what John has said, which is God is love. Through and through, not God acts loving, uh, not anything else, but God is love. He is the very definition of love. So we need to get it right. There, I love this. That as Christ has entered into even death, there is no place now that isn't filled with his presence. So the atonement is not primarily about personal guilt being done away with because someone else paid the penalty. The atonement is about God pursuing us even unto death in order to redeem us. And if Jesus were just a pawn in God's game of wrath satisfaction, there would be no need for him to full enter fully into the human experience. But here on the cross, shamed and thirsty is evidence that he is entering into the full weight of the human experience in order to redeem us. Amen? And so Jesus says, I am thirsty. And then the thirst is quenched with a drink of sour wine. This is cheap wine. Uh, scholars agree that this is the same kind of wine that uh, soldiers of the time would have drank while they're on duty. It's cheap wine. It's famously bad and cheap stuff. Um, I hate to do this, but it's sort of, it's a bit like church coffee. Um, you know, it's just like, it's just famously bad. Uh, it's just really hard to get church coffee right. Um, and, and, and so that's what they offer. Uh, they offer him this, this sour wine, the army wine. But again, since details are important in John's gospel, when, when we hear Jesus say, I am thirsty, we're made to be thinking about all the times that he's mentioned water. And when he he's, has that thirst quenched with, with a sip of wine, we're, we're made to be thinking about, again, uh, what is, what is John told us about wine. And our minds go again to John chapter 2 when Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding. And again, this is where the wedding host runs out of the wine too early, so Jesus turns the water into fine wine. But what's interesting about this story in particular is that John says this. 
In John, in John chapter two, right away, John says this, this is the first of the signs which God revealed his glory. And you think, hmm, I think that we're gonna be brought on something that's a bit like choose your own adventure, where we are to identify the signs by which God reveals his glory throughout this narrative. And so again, in, in uh, John, the, the second one, where we, heal, where we have the story of the healing of the nobleman's son, John says, this was the second sign. <laughs> and so he says, this is the first sign that revealed God's glory. And then he says, this is the second sign that reveals God's glory. And then he says, after that, I'm going to leave the counting up to you. But he will mention, he'll throw in hints about this, is, this revealed the glory of God and all of this. And so we have a whole sequence of signs throughout the gospel that reveal God's glory to us. Here are the signs. The first one, water into wine at Cana. The second one, the healing of the nobleman's son. The third one, healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. The fourth one, the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth sign, healing the man born blind. The sixth sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. Each one revealing the glory of God. This is, it's like, it's like every time we read one of these miracles, it's John telling us in a narrative way, this is what God is like. Are you paying attention? This is what God's kingdom is like. People are healed. People are fed. Needs are met. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And he's, it's, a, it's a whisper shout, which is kind of like how all of you say amen. <laughs> right? And so he's whisper shouting to us with all of these signs. But we know, of course, of course we know that the signs aren't going to end at, at, at six, right? We know that can't be the case. We know the signs have to go to seven because in the Jewish mind, seven was the number of completeness following the seven days of creation. And so the seventh sign, John wants us to know, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. The seventh sign. Now we'll talk about the eighth sign next week. But John wants us to see a couple of things through this whole sequence of signs. He wants us to know this. He wants us to know that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ reveals to us the very glory of God. The purpose, after all, the stated purpose of the signs was to reveal the glory of God. That when these signs are performed, the, the glory of God is revealed. And so John wants to say to us, and he wants us to say, have it crystal clear in our minds that That when Christ is on the cross, this is not a picture of God being defeated or overcome or overwhelmed, but rather this is in fact the glory of God being revealed. And we might say, how in the world is the glory of God revealed through a Jewish carpenter being brutally killed on a cross? I mean, this is not a pretty way to die. This is absolutely ugly. And so how can this reveal the glory of God? And John wants us to understand this. It is the glory of self-sacrificial love poured out for the benefit of the other. That's the heart of the gospel. That is the character of God. The very glory of God is self-sacrificial love being poured out for the benefit of the other. Amen? Everything else 
is commentary. Everything else is how do we work that out? How do we live that out in, in, in our cul-de-sac life, in our suburban life, in our urban life? Like where, wherever you live, whatever circles of influence that you have in the, in the culture in which we find ourselves, in the political climate in which we find ourselves, in all of these things, it's all commentary of how do we work out and how do we live into the truth of this, that the glory of God is revealed in Christ in that it is the self-sacrificial love poured out for the benefit of others. I wonder how many times we want, desire, think, or are convinced that the glory of God is, well, precisely what the the Jewish folks thought the glory of God was, which is the Messiah taking up arms to finally defeat the enemy just as all other enemies have been defeated. And we say, oh, the glory of God is that he is more powerful, but in the same kind of way. You see what the gospel is showing us? Is that the glory of God is altogether unique in the world. And it's the truest kind of glory. The glory of self-sacrificial love poured out for the benefit of the other. He also wants us to see that just as creation had seven days, so the new creation has seven signs. The signs of of God's glory, each one revealing this new creation, this, this world that God is bringing about. Like, what is God doing in the world? God is seeking to bring about new creation. Well, what does the new creation look like? It looks like, it looks like people uh, being healed from disease. It looks like people who are hungry being fed. Uh, it, it looks like uh, when there is thirst or a need, it looks like that need being met in abundance. That's what the new creation looks like. And so every time this reveals the glory of God, it reveals the glory of God. This is what new creation looks like. Seven days of creation, seven signs of new creation. And, and John wants us to come to the end where the whole glory of God is revealed on the cross and he wants us to say a gigantic amen (laughs) so be it that's what amen means right it means so be it may it be so oh God and if we embody this, if we, if we live this out as the people of God and we do it faithfully, then our very lives become this sort of prayer lifted up to God, that God, as we participate in your new creation, may it be so, may it come about. And our very lives become a prayer. I wonder if that's what Paul meant when he said in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. I don't think he meant for Christians to lock themselves in their holy room and never engage the world. I wonder if in fact what he meant is to live in such a way that your very lives become a prayer of new creation. That your very lives become an answer to the prayer that the Jesus taught us to pray. May your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. After the seventh sign of new creation, we hear Jesus' words, it is finished. It is finished. And after that, he breathes his last and offers up his spirit. 
There's a richness and a depth to these words that we don't even have time to talk about this morning, but I at least want to frame it in this way. These words, it is finished, are pointing us to the reality that the work of salvation is complete. That God has tabernacled among us. He has entered into the human experience fully, even to the point of death, and in so doing, he has redeemed all of humanity, all who will call on him by faith. That there there isn't yet a a work of salvation to be uh, completed or done. There isn't work that God still has to do uh, other than bring what is already true to fruition. Um, if you've been around here a long time, you've, you've heard me say this, but I think it bears saying again, a way to think about this or to illustrate this is, it's football season, so I'll use football, but uh, in football, there are games where the clock hasn't ended, but you know the game is over. You're like, this is a done deal. This team has lost, right? Uh, and I don't follow football very closely, otherwise I would give specific teams, but uh, you know, Team A is winning. It's an absolute blowout. It's only the third quarter, but everyone knows it's done. The work is is completed. It's finished. And this is a lot like what Jesus does on the cross. He completes the work of salvation. It is done. There is no more work to be done except to bring us to the end of the game. And in bringing us to the end of the game, we are making true what has already been done. And so we, we move in that direction it's, let me give you another way of thinking about it. God has completed the work of salvation. He's shown us the world that is coming about in, in the book of Revelation. And I don't mean that in a, like a geopolitical event kind of way. I mean that John the Revelator has a vision of what God's new creation looks like. That's what I mean. And so we have this picture of the end of the script and we have the script completed. And, and, and now God says, all of you are actors, bring us to the final act. You are called to be part of this, to move this whole thing in the direction which I have already done. The work of salvation is complete. It is finished. I know this is a different way of thinking about the cross. I've been here a long time been here 11 years preaching from this spot and in that time I've come to trust and love all of you hopefully you've come to trust and love me so we can have conversations like this and we can together begin to think maybe differently about what we've always heard or always understood and and just try it on if this doesn't work this doesn't sit well then that's okay I'm not mad at you. Please don't be mad at me. <laughs> but when I, part of, part, of, part of being in a place a long time, I was, I was 26 when I, when I started pastoring this church. I was a kid. Uh, so you all have raised yourself a pastor. <laughs> and part of what that means is, is watching me grow up. And when I came to this new awareness or new understanding of what it might mean for the cross, the meaning of the cross and and the beauty of the gospel, uh, it resonated in my heart. It may not resonate in yours, but it has in mine. 
and I want to present it to you as an option of, of understanding all that God is doing and accomplishing on the cross. Amen? And so, I want us to see this morning that God is not so repulsed by our sin that he refuses to enter in. But rather, he is so moved by love to redeem our sin that he takes it on. Paul says that Christ became sin on our behalf. He takes it on, which leads to death, and then filling death with his presence frees us from it. For the primary issue the gospel is seeking to solve is not individual guilt, but rather the problem of sin and death. And praise be to God, for in Jesus Christ, it has been solved. We can live in eternal life, free from sin. Amen? Amen. May we live in light of this beautiful gospel.